Washington. Let me pray as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace that because in Jesus we have you in our midst. For you are the glorious and holy God, while we are so unworthy even to stand in your presence. And so we pray that in your spirit we may continue to be molded and changed, to be more like Jesus, to be more fit to stand before you. And now as I speak, please teach me to speak clearly and faithfully to your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now friends, uh, today we end our series, our current series on Exodus, and we will be looking at the last six chapters of Exodus 35 to 40, beginning on page 89 of the Church Bible. And to help us through this rather long passage, uh, is a guide in the center of the bulletin which may be helpful because it will contain all the um, chapters and the verses uh, as I go through each one of them very quickly. But however, before we go into the passage, let us reflect back on what the Bible has told us about the people of God so far. Well, friends, in Genesis, we saw that humanity was created in God's image and in His likeness for intimate fellowship and relationship with God and also with each other. But our ancestors Adam and Eve sinned against our God and disobeyed Him. And as they did so, humanity came under God's judgment and we lost this intimate fellowship with God God walking among His people. We have lost the joy of living in God's space, in the Garden of Eden, as His people, God's people, and under His blessing. As we go to the book of Exodus, we find that this sad story continues to be told as it tells us about the disobedience of God's people. Because even as he rescued them from slavery in Egypt through Moses, his people, uh, his servant, they grumbled and complained bitterly at every point of their escape. Nonetheless, the people of God has this sense of wanting God to be on their side and by their side, to shelter under his love and his protection and his care. Our friends, we too have this need. A very famous Christian writer once write, uh, wrote, in the middle of the last uh, century, that men and women were born with this empty space that is shaped in the shape of God that cannot be filled by anything of creation, but only by God Himself. We too, friends, have this need, have this need to be fulfilled by God. Well, for God's people during Moses' time, when He was around, they could see and feel God's power and influence working through him in, in acts of power and might. But the minute he left them under the care of Aaron and went up the hill, went up the Mount Sinai uh, to, at the call of God to get the Ten Commandments, what did they do? They made a golden calf so that they could feel that God was in their midst again. Not stopping to think that this was in express disobedience of God's commandments because they were replacing the true God with an idol that was made of gold. And friends, you know, the biggest irony and sadness of this was that Moses was called, was commanded 
by God to go up to the Mount Sinai for this very purpose, to receive instructions on how to make a tabernacle that is fit for God to dwell among His people once again. And on page uh, 86 in Exodus 33, God's wrath was revealed. And we read this. When the people heard this disastrous word, they moaned. For the Lord has said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. And now that was not all. Come with me a little bit further to page 87, to the first verse on the left-hand side, verse 7. Let me read that to you. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. See what it means? God no longer dwelt in the midst of Israel, and he could only be met outside the camp. Now, how would an unholy, a sinful, and disobedient people ever going to enjoy that intimacy with the Holy God ever again. Now, once again, Moses, the faithful servant of God, interceded on verses 15 to 16 on the same page. Hear what Moses said to God. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And so what's God's response? Come with me to chapter 34, verse 6 on the same page. The Lord says this way. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Over the page, quickly, um, to 34, verses 10 to 27. The Lord, once again, make a covenant before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among whom you, shall, you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. You see, the Lord is a covenantal God. And our passage today opens with Moses reminding the people that they are dealing with a covenantal God in Exodus 35 verses 1 to 3. He reminded them that the Sabbath was to be a day of rest, holy to the Lord, just as they have covenanted with God. The people were to drop everything that they were doing so that they could observe this holy day, holy to the Lord. Now, no point having a tabernacle with the presence of God among His people when His people did not even bother to have time for Him, isn't it? A reminder also to us, friends, that in the midst of the hustle and bustle and the busyness of living here in Kuala Lumpur, we too must set aside time so that we can communicate, can fellowship, can uh, be, have this, this relationship with God and so that He could have fellowship with us as well. No point in having a beautiful cathedral like, uh, like St. Mary's and not coming to church or only coming when and when we have the spare time to do so. No point having beautiful flowers decorating the church that only the tourists would enjoy when we don't even bring our families and our friends to come and fellowship with each other here in church. In Moses' time, Moses warned his people, keep the Sabbath, 
of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Now next, as you follow through, uh, Moses spoke about God's commands for his people to provide the material and the skills for making the tabernacle. A few quick points from the long passage from chapter 35, verse 4 to chapter 36, verse 7. First of all, the giving must be from a generous heart. Moses uh, was told by God to command the people, give generously, not stingily, in verse 5. From hearts that were stirred or spirit that were moved, in verse 21. It must be a free will offering to the Lord, verse 29. And what about the skills? The skills are to come from all the people, from every man and woman who has them, craftsmen, in verse 10, women's spinners of cloth and yarn, in verse 25, and the Odo Bezalel and Oholaib, who were specially gifted by God, were to lead the work. Nonetheless, they were also to teach the other people who were not as skilled as themselves. And you know what? The people were so generous that Moses, Moses had to command them not to give any more in uh, chapter 36, verse 6. And if you go quickly to chapter 38 on page 93, chapter 38 on page 93 on verses 21 to 31, and you will go through that in detail when you're home, not here. Um, and you look at it and you will see that the amount of precious material that they collected was amazing. They collected more than they need, but this is what they collected. By some count, it works out to be one ton of gold, four tons of silver, and three tons of bronze. Amazing. Well, friends, that same principle of giving for the work of God also applies to us this very day. God wants us to give generously, each one of us, not only of our financial means, but also of our wisdom, our skills, our intelligence, our ability, and to give it ungrudgingly and uncomplainingly, working together as a team for the furtherance of God's kingdom on earth. And as Marys, we have been so blessed with all of your generosity and all your contributions in kind to the multitude of ministries that we do here. Well, our narrative now moves to the physical making of the tabernacle from chapter 36, verse 8, to the end of the chapter. Let me just quickly summarize um, a few points here. Uh, while the word tabernacle is also used to describe the whole of the sanctuary, here it is used to describe the holy place where only the priests can enter. And that most holy place, or the holy of holies, where only the priest, where only the high priest could enter, and that one only during that special day of atonement, that one day in the year. And in um, 36 verse 8 and uh, verse 35, you will see that everything was done with their best efforts, exquisitely crafted and exquisitely sewn. And notice how the work is described as being done by Bezalel, in the sense that Bezalel organized the whole effort using the best talents and materials. And note once again the large amount of precious and semi-precious metal that went into the tabernacle. And once again, friends, we can learn from this long list of things uh, that, was, um, that was listed. Our service to God demands our best, not only our spare cash in terms of money 
or in terms of our time, only when we can or when it is convenient for us. Our best efforts in terms of talent and skill must be given, no chin chai chin chai only. For God deserves our best because all things come from Him and of His own do we give Him. Now when we move to chapter 37, very quickly, we find that it opens with the making of the ark. And uh, now the ark itself is a small little um, a rectangular box of about a meter in length and about 0.7 meter in width and in depth. Now, it was made of acacia wood, but it was overlaid both inside and outside with pure gold, with the finest of gold. The box did not sit on the ground, but on four legs, and to these four legs are fitted rings of gold. Exodus 25 tells us that long wooden acacia poles overlaid with gold were inserted into these rings so that no human hands could touch the ark. And these poles were not to be taken out of the rings even when the ark was at rest so that no human hands could touch the ark. But the most important thing about the ark is the top cover of the ark itself, which was called the mercy seat, or in some translations, if you read, uh, as the atonement cover that was made of pure gold with two golden cherubims facing each other with their wings outstretched, covering the whole of the mercy seat. Later, if you read on um, for more instructions for the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, we will find that the blood of the sacrificial bull for Aaron and his family and the blood of the chosen goat for the people will be taken and sprinkled on this mercy seat every year. As God told Moses in Exodus 20, 25 also, this is where on that mercy seat that God would meet with His people on the atonement cover between the two golden cherubims. Oh friends, that was a foreshadowing of the time to come when the blood of the sacrificial Lamb of God, His only Son, Jesus Christ, will be shed for the forgiveness of sin once and for all. It was on that amazing cross that God would show His love and mercy and reach out for a recalcitrant people who would be unable to return to Him alone. And we were told that when Jesus died, the temple veil that replaced the tabernacle veil was split from top to bottom and humanity was no longer separated from God. Now the passage now moves us to the three items in the holy place just outside of the veil. First of all, the table of bread. The table for the bread was a frame of acacia wood once again, and it was overlaid with pure gold. And it is used to carry the 12 loaves of the bread of the presence that the people were to place perpetually before the Lord. And in Leviticus 24, we are told that this bread was meant to be eaten only by the priests. And this side of the cross... We know that God is the true provider for His people who are now a kingdom of priests. For in John 6, 33, Jesus tells us that He is the bread that comes down from heaven and who gives life to the world. And the bread He gives for the life of the world is His flesh. 
So we have the first item, the table for the bread. The second item is the lampstand with the seven cups, which Exodus 25 verse 37 tells us was to provide light within the covered holy place where there were no light, uh, very little light can come in. Now friends, to this day, the menorah remains one, if not the most, prominent symbols of Jewish religion. The Apostle John captures this, this very sad and ironic uh, aspect of the religion when he writes in the passage that we read just now from John chapter 1, that in Jesus was the life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness have not overcome it. That Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. How sad and ironic it is that the people would not accept the fuller revelation, the more complete revelation that came with the Son of God when He became incarnate on earth 2,000 years ago. There was a second thing, the lamp for the light. The third thing outside in the holy place is the altar of incense, the frame of which was again made of acacia wood and again was overlaid with pure gold. And again, when we look at Leviticus 16, Leviticus 16 commands Aaron that he on the Day of the Atonement is to bring the burning incense into the Holy of Holies uh, behind the veil where the Lord was present. Why, did he, why was he asked to do that? Well, so that the smoke, the cloud of smoke from the incense would cover the mercy seat so that Aaron would not die. For man could not see the face of God and live. This side of the cross, the writer of Hebrews reminds us that in Jesus, we can see the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. God no longer needs to be hidden by veils and cloud of incense smoke. He can be seen in His Son Jesus, and one day we will see Him face to face in heaven. Now, outside the screen door of the tabernacle in the courtyard could be would be the two items that would not be overlaid with gold. Or firstly, the altar of burnt offering that is made of acacia wood that is overlaid only with bronze, where animal sacrifices would be made and their carcasses born, uh, burnt, and from which some of the blood would be taken into the Holy of Holies and spattered on the mercy seat. The second item would be the bronze basin, basin where the priests would wash themselves before going into the holy place to serve the Lord. And the whole of chapter 9, more or less, described in amazing detail the making of the wonderful garments uh, for Aaron as high priest and for his sons as priests. And at the end of everything, we read at the end of verse uh, 33 of chapter 40, uh, everything culminated in these uh, few words. So Moses finished the work. Moses finished the work. And then what happened? Well, let me read that to you, the following verse. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of God was so great 
that even Moses was not able to enter the tent. And in our last verse of our passage, it says this, The cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. God was once again dwelling among his people, even as they journey uh, in, from the wilderness. Well, so we have uh, finally completed all the six long chapters of uh, Exodus. But what can we bring home with us? Let me suggest three things. Well, firstly, the tabernacle was commanded by God during this period in the history of his people so that the glory of God, his very presence, could be seen in their midst. He would be with them in the conquest and the occupation of the promised land. Even when this movable tabernacle was replaced by Solomon's grand temple, which was built in the mid-900s BC, the ark where God sat between the cherubims would be placed in the most holy place, just as it has been in the tent. And now this ark would disappear when the temple was sacked and destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 BC. His absence was desperately felt by his people because in their minds, with the disappearance of the ark, God was no longer with them. He, they have been forsaken. And the returning exiles hurried to rebuild the temple, though on a much more modest scale. And it took them a long time. It took them from 538 BC to 515 BC. And even then, it was built in stages, the altar and then the temple. But in whatever stage of completion these things were, the altar and the temple remains the center of Jewish worship. And this continued into the grand temple that was built by King Herod in, in uh, 19 BC, until this temple itself was also completely destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. Now, some, some years ago, at the turn of the millennium, there was some serious talk about rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Luckily, we don't hear any more of it. We, because we know that with the coming of Christ, the temple need no longer be the center of our worship with our communion with God. Because God's glory and His presence among His people now lies in the Spirit, indwelling in each one of us, you and me. We are the temples of the living God, where God lives, guiding us, urging us, strengthening us, and molding us to what He would want us to be. That's the first thing. Well, second thing that we can bring home, we know that priests with their beautiful clothes and tabernacle with its beautiful furniture and fittings and the worship rituals within the sacrificial system set in Leviticus were established by God and were important to Him. Otherwise, He would never have commanded His people to go to such lengths to obey His command. Now, this side of the cross, we also know that as God's temple, as God's people, we are a kingdom of priests. And what we term as priests in our church are only our elders, established by God for the proper and orderly governance of His church. 
and that the works of beauty, skill, and precious metal that you can see in churches around the world were meant for glory and beauty as expressed in uh, Exodus 28 verse 2 in the context of Aaron's clothes. They were not, and they are not, essential for our worship, for our fellowshipping with God. And worse still is when we would treat them as if they are objects for veneration and worship. They are there. They are here just because we want to make beautiful things to praise and glorify the God of all creation. That's the second thing. And thirdly, friends, in Jesus, God is no longer hidden from us and separated by the thick tabernacle or the uh, temple veil or clouds of incense that will hide the mercy seat. In Jesus, we are once again reconciled with God and our sins have been forgiven. And we are told that we have the right to be the children of God, co-heirs of His kingdom together with Jesus. And it is in this recognition that we should, uh, that should point us towards pointing others to Jesus. Obeying His great commission in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And trusting in Jesus' promise that He is always with us till the end of the age. Our friends, Jesus is the glory of God, dwelling with His people, tabernacling with His people now and always. Always remember that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you that you love us so much that you sent Jesus to die on that cross so that we may live trusting in him. Please help us to look to Jesus and to rely on the strength of your Holy Spirit so that we may be able to carry out all the commands they have given to us to do and to carry out the ministries that we have placed as Marys for us to complete. And so we trust and pray that, Lord, you will grant us your grace and your strength in all these things. And in all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.